0: I'm reading from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26, starting from verse 26. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, and who has insulted the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathised with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a very little while... He who is coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous one will live by faith, and if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved.
1: Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your word in its entirety it speaks to us, that all scripture speaks to us, and you use it to shape us. The hard bits, the bits we know well and cherish. So, Father, as we come to this passage today, will you help us? Will your Holy Spirit lead us? Will we continue to rejoice in our Saviour, but hear the challenge of your word today? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we come, or we'll continue in Hebrews 10, to this last section? And it is a warning passage. And remember, if you've been with us throughout this series, we've said we have these passages of wonderful truth and encouragement, and interjected, we also have these warning passages. Today is the fourth one of these, the fourth warning. And perhaps the words we read today are some of the strongest words of warning in this book. Does that surprise us at this point? Is it jarring to have this particular passage, particularly after all these amazing things we've been thinking about these last few weeks? In many ways, not at all. It makes complete sense to have these strong words here. The new covenant we've been thinking of is so wonderful We've been shown so many amazing truths that perhaps the warning attached to them will naturally be stronger. And perhaps it should be no surprise to us because within the wonder of what we've been thinking, these warnings have not been hidden. We have a great high priest, a king priest who is the son, who is perfect, but perfect because the old priesthood wasn't. Because the old priest needed to keep making sacrifices for their sins, for themselves as well as the people. We have a new covenant filled with wonder and promises of sins forgiven and the law written on our hearts. But we needed a new covenant because people couldn't follow the old. It showed what a sinful, rebellious people we were in need of a saviour. And we have a better sacrifice. Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God, who willingly gave himself to die in our place. But we have this because the old system couldn't take away sin. The tabernacle showed us that God was holy and unapproachable because we are not. The sacrificial system showed us the cost of sin and our inability to pay it. A giant curtain stood between the people and the holy of the holies that said, because of your sin, you can't come in. And then last week, Cal took us through these wonderful truths that because of Jesus, because of his sacrifice, because he died, that curtain is torn down And now we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. We can draw near. We can have peace with God, friendship with God. We can come. How amazing is that? We can come. Massive promises. But with massive promises come big warnings. You see, the car park directly in front of the school here is usually unreachable for us. I'm sorry still, it's a pain. We can't get into it because there is a big blue gate that stops anyone from getting in. And we don't have a key. But a few weeks ago, those gates were open. I don't know what went wrong. They The mechanism was broken and those gates were wide open. Do you know what amazed me that week? Not one of you parked in the car park. All of you parked on the street or in the outer car park. The way was open and you didn't come in. Which is quite funny when you think about cars and car parks. But not funny at all when you think about the presence of God. Jesus has opened the way to the Father. But a large majority of this world has not come. And the promise is great. The promise says you can come in. But the warning says you must come in the end of our section last week, the writer says we need to do all these things that Cal talked about all the more as you see the day drawing near. That day is the end of time when Jesus will come back. And with that in mind, it's why I'm sure the writer turns to start talking about judgment. And it's not a topic we like to talk about, is it? We can wince at some of the Old Testament stories of judgment. And some have fallen into the trap and said, well, that's the God of the Old Testament. He was a God of judgment. We don't see that in the New Testament, but that's just not true. It's the same God. And Hebrews leaves it impossible for us to deny that God is judge. And we read it here, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living god we've seen he is holy and just he will judge the world and sin will be punished forever and these three chapters haven't hid this they've shown us there's no escape from judgment except in forgiveness through the blood of jesus christ And that's the point, isn't it? God is holy and just, but he is loving. And he has made a way through the curtain, a way into the throne room of God so that we can know forgiveness and peace with God. But we've seen that that's the only way. No other sacrifices work. And verse 27 in our passage today tells us if you remove the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, what is left A fearful expectation of judgment. Jesus is the way to God. He told us himself when he was on earth. He said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So to reject the Son, to reject the Savior is to reject the only way. You might not have come into the car park a few weeks ago, but at least there were other places to park, the outer car park, the road. But the Bible says if you reject Jesus Christ, there is nowhere else to turn. No intercessor, no mediator, no forgiveness, no peace with God, no other path. If you're not a Christian here this morning, can I just say, I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad that you've come among us. I'm so glad that you've come into a church. I'm so glad that you are hearing these things and working them through. And I know that can be a really hard thing to do. So I just want to say again, it is great that you are here. And we want to help you on your journey, whichever point of that journey you are on. And I believe that God has put you here this morning to hear this wonderful truth, that you've rebelled against this great God, that we're sinners. And although you are far from him, he loves you so much, he sent his son to die on a cross to deal with sin so that you can come close. You can come to God this morning. But I would be doing you a disservice if I left it there. I wouldn't be showing you love if I said you can come and then stopped and didn't say you must come. These are hard words to hear. But without Jesus Christ, we've seen there is no hope. We need to come to Jesus Christ today. But is that the whole of this warning passage to those who don't know God? Well, no, I don't believe it is. These warning passages are for the people of God. And I spent a lot of time laying this out when we looked at chapter six. And I encourage you, if you haven't listened to that one, to go online uh, and to listen to that one. Back then, I shared that there were many different ways that Christians approach these passages and that I wasn't going to fall out with anyone over what they were saying, but I shared with what I felt the Lord was saying to me. And I don't want to repeat that sermon again this morning. You can go back and listen to it. But I believe it's the same understanding as we come to this warning passage. Because the problem we raised back in chapter 6 is that if the warning passages are for Christians, and the writer here is speaking to Christians, does that mean then that a Christian can lose their salvation? Some have said, yes, that's exactly what this means, but others. Then have struggled to match this up with the promises of Scripture that say, "Those who will be saved, those who are saved will not be lost." And last, week, last time we had all the examples up on screen, the way some folk get around this is to say the passage talks about different things. Maybe it's not talking about Christians at all, but maybe those who are nearly saved, those in the church who aren't actually Christian yet. Well, perhaps it's not talking about final judgment, but instead it's talking about a loss of reward. And I said I couldn't see that for the reasons we shared in chapter 6, but I did say I believed it was possible to hold these two things together, warning and security. Because it's the warnings, I believe, that God uses to keep his true children warnings are the means of grace god uses to work in the life of a believer so do i still believe that as i come to chapter 10 well yes and actually i think i'm a little more convinced than i was back in chapter six so uh if you will bear with let me show you my workings out as we come to the end of chapter 10 four questions to help us understand this morning to because we need to be really clear on our terms who of this passage so question one who is the warning for who is he speaking to and i said i believe it is christians that the writer is writing to the writer has been writing to christians throughout this letter But particularly in this chapter and even in this section, it started with, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place. There is no change of direction when we hit these verses. It is still those brothers who have confidence to enter the holy places that are being warned. I look further at the descriptions of these brothers. They have received the knowledge of truth. Verse 29, they are sanctified. They're sanctified. We were rejoicing in this truth a couple of weeks ago, God's amazing work in us through Jesus Christ. We can't deny it now as something special, something that's not special just for a Christian. The quote that talks of God as judge says this, God will judge his people. Verse 32, these folk are described as as enlightened, and the description goes to show how they have suffered for their faith because of this. This shows it's not just a head knowledge or little knowledge or a kind of sneak peek idea of Christianity. They had come out from darkness into light. But perhaps the most interesting thing we see here that we haven't seen elsewhere is right at the start in verse 26. Do you see it there? It's how the writer includes himself in this number. If we go on sinning. Not if you lot do that. The writer includes himself in these warnings. He's not doing this as an almost Christian, but as a disciple with an important warning from God for his people. So is the warning for Christians, I believe? Number two, question number two we have to ask is then, what is the warning against? And just like last time, I believe the warning is against apostasy. We went with a working definition last time of apostasy as the total abandonment or renunciation of a religious belief. Look at the passage, verse 26. If we go on sinning deliberately. You might read these words and think, well, I sin." Well, you do, and you're not alone. We all do. And sin is wrong and always a problem. But we pray that God is still at work in us. That was the other bit of sanctification, wasn't it? That the Holy Spirit under the jelly mold work in as we grow to look more like Jesus Christ, aligning our hearts with his. And it's a long and sometimes painful process. That picture in Ephesians of the sculptor chipping away, removing the faults to present us as faultless and blameless. And God works, we know, in different ways at different times, revealing sin in our lives that we need to deal with before him. I don't believe that's what we're talking about here. The word carries much stronger connotations. Those who are deliberate in their sin. Those who continue in their sin with full knowledge of it, unapologetic, unrepentant, with no shame, with no sorrow, almost boastful in the fact that they are happily breaking the law of God. This is not talking, I believe, about those who are struggling with temptation and sin, not those who have slipped, not even those who are backslidden maybe, but those who have stopped believing, and more than that, are opposed to God and his ways, in violent opposition to God, his law, and his people. We read further, these are some of the strongest words of apostasy, I believe in the whole Bible. Verse 29, they spurn the son of God, trample underfoot. Now you might think feet are quite gross things anyway. But the biblical picture of feet is a lot worse than now, even. We see it in the humility of Jesus as we approach Easter again, don't we? Where he washed the disciples' feet. The washing of feet was seen as the lowliest of jobs because the feet would have been awful. Walking constantly on, in sandals upon dusty, dirty roads. There the camels and donkeys around as well, so you can imagine what got on the feet. So, in those days, to raise your foot to someone was seen as an extreme insult. To describe something trampled underfoot shows utter contempt and scorn. We see it throughout the prophets Micah 7:10, an example: My enemy shall be trampled underfoot like mire in the streets. This description isn't just someone who has rejected Christian things but has shown the strongest antagonism towards the son but it continues the one who spurned the son has trampled has profaned the blood of the covenant Profane there means to totally disregard to treat with utter contempt what it's saying is to deny the sacrifice of Jesus Christ To deny its uniqueness, its power, and its effectiveness. To despise the work of Jesus. We read on, to outrage the spirit of grace. We see many descriptions of the Holy Spirit in the Bible, but this is the only place in Scripture that we see this one, the spirit of grace why is that well i think the point is that the emphasis is on the work of the spirit in bringing grace to us the spirit who opens our eyes to jesus the spirit who regenerates whose agency the grace of god comes to people you see it's a rejection of god and the free gift of forgiveness through jesus christ you see what we see here? The writer has shown us our great high king priest. And now he shows us what it looks like to despise him. He's shown us a wonderful covenant. And now he shows us what it means to deny it. He's shown us Jesus is Christ's once-for-all sacrifice. And now what it means to reject it. The warning is against apostasy. Question number three then. What is the result of not heeding this warning? Look with me at verse 28. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence or two or three witnesses it's the witnesses bit there that gives us the clue we need to see where he's talking about in the Old Testament here. And we think it's probably Deuteronomy 17. There in Deuteronomy 17, we read that there are those who are to be put to death. Their crime is transgressing the covenant and worshiping other gods. They transgressed. Transgress the covenant and worship other gods and they are to be put to death. The writer uses an argument we should be well familiar with now in Hebrews, the lesser to the greater. If the punishment for rejecting the old covenant was death, well, we've seen that the new covenant is superior to the old. So how much more will be the punishment for those who reject the son, those who deny his sacrifice, and those who despise the covenant. And we return to verse 26. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment, a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. For the apostate who rejects the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, well, to reject the sacrifice means there is nothing else. To turn away from the sacrifice means it leaves no saving alternative. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. The emphasis there is on the word for sins. There may well be other sacrifices, But none that deal with sin. It's the point of this letter. It's only Jesus. Only Jesus. And if you reject him, then there's nothing. So, question four then what is the purpose of the warning? And the purpose of the warning, I believe, is the purpose of any warning, to stop you from falling. Like I started with, I believe the warnings are means of grace. Things that God will use in the life of those who are truly his. They are not empty threats, but warning signs of grace to take heed of. Do you remember the example from Charles Spurgeon who gave the example of the warning on the bottle of a bottle of poison? The warning on the poison doesn't look pleasant, looks sinister and describes the terror if the warning is not heeded. And if you choose to drink that poison, the warning is not an empty threat. You will die. But if you believe the warning, then there's no way you're drinking that. The warning passages here are given to work in the life of God's chosen people. And, I, and they work. They work. I believe the writer to the Hebrews believes that as he is writing them. Again, I believe there's no evidence that this has already happened amongst those whom he's writing to. When he's talking about the apostate, the clauses are all conditional. He he doesn't say, don't be like that apostate over there. No. Whilst in the previous section, he has said there are those who are in the habit of stop meeting. He doesn't say there are any who have done this in the fellowship. Actually, quite the opposite. In verse 39, he says, but we are not those who shrink back and we are not those who are destroyed, but we are those who have faith and preserve their souls. The writer says, the warnings will work. He has hope for his reader. They will understand these wonderful things he's been saying in these chapters. They will see Jesus Christ. They will heed the warnings and they will draw near to God. And that's our prayer. That's our prayer for ourselves and our prayer for each other too. These are hard, hard words. Do these words convict you of sin in your life? Yes? That's good. Do these descriptions of what it means to be an apostate, to trample Jesus Christ, to reject the Son... Do these words sting you to the core? Yes. Good. Do these words spur us on? Do these words make us want to avoid the poison? Do these words jump out to you like the skull? on the side of that poison bottle. Good. Because that's what they're for. And if they're doing that, it means God is at work in your life. And praise him for it. Praise him for the good, the wonderful things we've been reading, but praise him for his mercy in the warnings. Remember the backdrop to this book is suffering. And we're going to come back to this next week to some of these verses we've missed in the middle of our section today. But the call in amongst all these hard words is to endure. Verse 36. For you have need of endurance. Endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. That's the call for us too as well. Endure. Keep going. Don't give up. Don't go back. He'll turn in the next few chapters to the language of the athlete. Finish the race. Keep going. It's interesting there, the quote in verse 37 comes from Habakkuk. If you know anything of the book of Habakkuk, this call that the prophet makes comes out in the midst of distress and widespread godliness. Godlessness. (laughs) He calls out to God, In the most awful of times. He feels all around him are godless and have wandered. He's distressed, there's suffering. He calls to God and what is the response that comes? Be patient and endure. Yet a little while. And the coming one will come and will not delay but my righteous shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Be patient, endure, keep going. Hold on to the wonderful truths we have been presented in, in this book. Heed the warnings and endure. So we too will not be those who shrink back but those who have faith and persevere to the end. And remember the point of this book. We don't do this in our own strength. We don't do this because of who we are and what we've done. We're saved by the blood of Jesus. But it's in him we persevere. Also so hold to the truth, heed the warnings, and endure. It's a hard words meant to convict us, so let's take time quiet to respond to God. Respond to his challenge, respond to the convictions but also respond to his love, to the sacrifice of Jesus that means we can endure. Jesus has opened the way. We can come and we must come. Respond in our hearts to him. Father, we thank you that through the blood of Jesus the way is open that we can come into the presence of God. Thank you for these passages, though, that remind us that we must come. And for those who are still working that through, even for the very first time, Father, thank you for them. Thank you that you love them, that you are interested in their life, and you love and are interested in them. Father, will you continue to reveal yourself to them and show them that they must come. And Father, these are hard, hard words we've read today. But thank you, even in the hardest of these words, they are full of your grace and full of your mercy. Thank you, we are saved because of the blood of Jesus. And the only way we can even dream of keeping going, of persevering, of enduring, is because he has saved us because he intercedes for us because he goes before us. So Father, we praise you even for the warnings and the mercy and love we see in them. And we pray for each other that you would keep us and that we would endure. You would continue to use these as your means of grace in our lives until Jesus Christ returns and takes us home and it's in his glorious name we pray. Amen.